0: Web development has historically had more work being done on the server than on the client. And the observability tooling has reflected this emphasis on the back end. Lightweight clients, maybe you don't need that much monitoring, but the heavyweight back end, you need all kinds of monitoring and observability. There have been monitoring tools for log management and back end metrics existing for decades, and these tools have helped developers debug their server infrastructure. Today, Web frontends have much more work to do than they did in the past. There are detailed components in frameworks such as React and Angular, and they might respond quickly without waiting for a network request, with their mutations being processed entirely in the browser. And this results in better user experiences, but more work is being done on the client side, away from the back-end observability tools. Matt Arbisfeld is a co-founder of LogRocket, a tool that records and plays back browser sessions and allows engineers to look at those sessions to understand what kinds of issues are occurring in the user's browser. Matt joins the show to talk about the field of front-end monitoring and the engineering behind his company LogRocket. FindCollabs is a hackathon company that I have been building, and it is now free to create hackathons for nonprofits and schools. If you have a hackathon that you want to create for a nonprofit or a school, that's free to do. And if you want to create a hackathon for your company or sponsor a hackathon, that's also an option. You can check it out at findcollabs.com. Matt Arbisfeld, welcome to the show. Good to be here. Back-end monitoring tools have existed for Longer than front-end monitoring tools. The field of front-end monitoring is less mature. On the back-end, you have lots of logging companies. You have metrics tools like Nagios or Prometheus. On the front-end, you have crash reporting tools as well as some basic log management. How does the domain of front-end monitoring compare to back-end monitoring?
1: It's really much different. And the way we see it, it really... This whole space of front-end monitoring became necessary maybe five, six years ago when really React, Angular, all these new single-page application frameworks were coming into fashion. And folks sort of expected more interactive web applications where, when you click a button, it doesn't make a round trip request to the server. You immediately see something happen on the front end. So that shift has really necessitated a a different way of monitoring client-side performance. Where are users struggling on the front end is just a, a much different domain than the server where um, it's more about tracing and, and infrastructure and server load, where on the front end it's more you know things like race conditions or memory issues or even just user experience issues are are more the the prominent um, as well as just the range of browsers, devices, network conditions that that you see on on the client side. so yeah, much different between backend and front end
0: and what you're saying there. That thesis is similar to the thesis behind crash reporting tools. I mean, the idea behind crash reporting tools is a user has a crash on their device and some client-side stack trace is created and shipped up to the cloud. And then if I'm the developer working on this app that just happened to crash on the user's device, I have the crash report and I can debug from there. But I think what you're observing is that it's gone from white and black levels of this is a bug, this caused a crash, to things that are more like performance issues, race conditions, jitteriness, things that are less starkly delineated as bugs.
1: Exactly. And even a crash, you have different types of crashes. You have one that breaks the entire experience. You know, think of your mobile app that just crashes completely. And then more sort of the silent crashes where maybe the browser can retry and it doesn't even appear visible to the user. So I think even now with the way single page apps are architected, that kind of notion of crash or not crash, there's a lot more gray area. And that's where client side monitoring is really much more different than back end monitoring.
0: Can you say more about why that standardization around front end frameworks like React and Angular and Vue why have these single-page application frameworks made it more necessary to have better front-end monitoring?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, the way I kind of see it is where is more and more code being written? And, you know, in a PHP stack, for example, 95% of the code is, is back-end code and it's doing all the processing. Now it's maybe closer to 50-50. It depends on the application. So you have a lot more front-end developers. You know, often, you know, it could be more junior developers, not always, but so more and more code is being written on the front end. And that, you know, happens that people are writing React and Angular, but just the more code that's there, the more surface area of, of what can go wrong. You know, I think there's also, you know, again, not based on the frameworks, but more user experience expectations where people are so used to their Facebook and Snapchat and really smooth, interactive applications that a lot of the more advanced techniques in front-end engineering are to support those types of user experiences that maybe five or six years ago was just not the expectation. So, you know, I think increasing user demands on the experience of the apps, as well as just more code being written is, is what really makes it different than five years ago.
0: You spent some time working on the Chrome team when you were an intern at Google. Does your experience having worked on Chrome, does that play a role in how you think about front-end monitoring?
1: Definitely, you know, both... Yeah, you know, I was at Google, at Chrome. I was also at Meteor, which was a JavaScript frameworks company, and worked on the front-end framework there. So you know, the feature I was working on at Chrome was for Canvas. And really there, I was working with developers on the cutting edge of building JavaScript applications, apps like Google Maps and gaming, where so much code was going to the front-end, and, and just saw this whole emerging world of what people were trying to do when it came to web applications. But I'd say really Meteor was where I saw the most sort of need for for client side monitoring, given how people were building apps and how developers really had no visibility into what was going on on the front end.
0: A slight deviation on the Meteor front, so Meteor was this full stack JavaScript framework and a company built around that for hosting it. And I used Meteor for a while, and it it was an amazing experience. I felt like they got caught at an interesting time in where the market was shifting and actually React came out and kind of disrupted the thesis of the company because I think the thesis was you want this unified JavaScript development experience and then with React you had a really good view layer that everybody wanted to use. And then it, it kind of disrupted the idea of Meteor because no longer did people necessarily want the full stack. They wanted to use React on the front end and then do something else on the back end. Do you have any reflections on the way that front end developed from your time at Meteor?
1: Yeah, I think that's the right analysis where a lot of Meteor was about this kind of coupling of the, the front end and the back end and write code that works everywhere. And I think it was an ambitious ambitious project, but it ended up being a team that was just focused on the view layer like React and a team that was just focused on, say, data fetching like the GraphQL team and Node on the back end, that those technologies could be sort of stuck together in a way that was maybe more effective than this monolithic framework. So I think what the team realized over time was where really the challenge is, is how do you keep data consistent across all these layers? And that's at least why I believe they've moved more towards GraphQL and now Apollo, where really data is at the center of it instead of saying, we want to write code that works everywhere.
0: Okay. So if we skip to the uh, present, we talk about common problems on the front end that make it into production, problems that the user is going to be experiencing in their browser. What are the issues that a developer might not identify in development, that would make it out into production.
1: Yeah. You know, there's working at LogRocket, you see every, you know, millions of types of issues that might happen to a customer. And so few of them, you know, can actually be captured when it comes to testing or, or integration testing. It really runs the gamut from a user's just confused, you know, usability type issue where maybe you thought something was clear, but the, the messaging was not clear. I've seen issues where, the user types in something and the validation returns an incorrect validation and that's not clear to the user. You have issues where there's certain paths that users take that you weren't expecting and, and weren't tested against, but you know, something like an exception happens or or state gets messed up. You know, depending on the app, you might be using local storage or session storage or cookies. And when you do an update, you're not respecting kind of the old version of the state in the browser. It could go on and on. Memory leaks, crashes. And that's just sort of explicit issues. Then there's a whole world of performance problems that you know adds another layer of complexity on everything. So it really, it really can get quite extensive.
0: LogRocket is the company that you founded, and it's a front-end monitoring tool. It records user sessions. So let's say I hit a page with LogRocket, like Instacart, for example. I'm shopping on Instacart. And LogRocket is also doing something in my browser. What's going on there? How is it recording my user session?
1: Yeah, good question. So what we do is we use an API called Mutation Observer in the browser, which basically lets us know whenever there's DOM that changes on the page, we're informed of those changes. And we capture essentially the diff of all the changes that are happening in the view. So let's say you click a button and a modal pops up. We're recording that a modal just appeared, serializing that and sending it to a server and then you know let's say you have an issue. developer Instacart goes and views that session. They're able to essentially replay exactly what you're seeing in the browser you know down to the the mouse click and that modal that appeared in the error message that you saw.
0: does that API for mutation does that also handle mouse movement tracking
1: so that's separate so there's another API in the browser that essentially will tell you anytime the mouse moves. So we use that API and then essentially sort of compute the path that the mouse took without sending millions of events. We compute sort of the best path that we think the mouse took. And also events like hover, focus events, so that we can make it appear when you're replaying the session where that mouse was in real time.
0: So I have my own opinions on this. The obvious question that people think about with these session recording tools is whether or not it's a it's a privacy problem or under what conditions it's a privacy problem. Because, you know, the reality is that, like, if I go on Facebook, yes, Facebook has all of the information about my sessions, and I'm sure they have tools that they could use to replay those sessions. So these these kinds of tools are a reality. And, you know, if we plug our ears and close our eyes, that's not going to prevent the fact that these tools exist all throughout the internet. But is it a privacy problem? Or how do you how do you interpret that fact that we now have tools, widespread tools that observe the entirety of a user's browser session?
1: Yeah, it definitely, you know, this comes up a lot. And we think a lot about this here at LogRocket. And the way we see it is we want to do everything in our power so that you're capturing just the information you need as a developer to troubleshoot issues and not information that's creepy or unnecessary. There's definitely an effect when you're watching someone that it can appear creepy. And the big things we do are, essentially, when you're debugging an issue, you probably don't need to know every single text the user's seeing, everything they've typed into every form. So allowing you to basically sanitize all the information by default and just enable certain fields or data that you want captured so that you're just explicitly choosing what data you need to troubleshoot issues. So giving really fine game controls around what's captured, what you actually need to know as a developer. And then the other part is, you know, big problem is when you're, you know, let's say you're a healthcare company and your customers believe, I'm just interacting with this healthcare company, but yet their data is going off to a third party, that being LogRocket. So we've put a lot of effort into our self-hosted version where if you're that healthcare company, you can store all that data on your own servers where you're already capturing all that data. So there's not another third party or source where that data may go. So it definitely is, you know, has privacy implications. But we kind of see our places. Let's do as much as we can to make it as protective of, as a user as possible, while still providing you know, the value to developers.
0: All right. Well, maybe we can revisit that later. But I want to talk more about what this actually does to provide value to developers. So if I'm using Instacart, I'm shopping for fruit, I add some grapes to my shopping cart, and then the grapes disappear from my shopping cart. So I email Instacart support, I ask them, why did the grapes disappear from my cart? What's going on here? How can they troubleshoot an issue like that?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. So Typically, what will happen is Instacart will have some sort of support tool, like a Zendesk intercom, and LogRocket will appear in that chat when you go chat in. Then when you view the session, the developer will, they'll likely see some sequence of events that's unusual. So maybe it's an order in which you clicked buttons, maybe it's, since we captured the API request as well, maybe certain API request was very slow or didn't complete. So they're able to view that information and see what was different than what you'd normally expect to happen. But usually they're using the sequence of, of clicks or mouse movements from the user, the API requests, or if you're using a framework like Redux, we also capture the Redux actions. So those are the main data sources a developer would use to figure out the root cause and then reproduce it locally.
0: And on your end, so if the user is navigating Instacart and that session is getting recorded, the mutations to the page are getting recorded, the mouse movements are getting recorded. Can you help me understand better how that data interchange between the client and the server is working? How are the recorded sessions, what format are they being packaged as and sent over the wire to you?
1: Yes, good question. So we use a format called protobuf, which is a binary data format invented by Google. And what that does is where... If you think of a JSON data, a lot of the storage there is in the actual keys. So that can really add to the amount of data you're sending. So what Protobuf allows you to do is, instead of having to pass the keys with every single data that you send, it just is sending values and then a sort of indicator of what data type it is. So instead of when you send a mouse movement, instead of sending x, y, and the position of the x and y coordinates, we can just send the coordinates, and it knows how that data should be represented. So Protobuf is the main format we use, and it it helps compress the data up to 90% when we're sending it to the server.
0: And how bandwidth intensive is it, like even after the compression? Is it severe enough to ever cause performance degradation?
1: It depends on the application and, and how much data is being captured. Most apps is around two to 10 kilobytes of data per minute. It can be more than that if you're capturing, say, large Redux stores. We also dynamically You know, if we notice it's a 4G connection or the internet's really slow, we are drop certain pieces of data so that we're not, you know, we're not hogging the network bandwidth.
0: Okay, so there are some issues that can be identified just by looking at the browser behavior and looking at the mutation changes that you look at. But front-end issues can also result from networking problems. Do you record the networking behaviors as well?
1: We do, yep. We basically proxy the fetch request and XHR requests to capture those data payloads. We also have built a way to determine if assets are failing to load, which actually a fairly difficult problem. So those are a really good source of data, especially in the modern single page app where API failures are a big cause of, of issues.
0: You said you, you proxy the XHR request. Can you explain what that is in more detail?
1: Yeah. So to install LogRocket developer installs an NPM package and when you import that NPM package, the awesome and the evil thing about JavaScript is that you can basically overwrite any function that the browser uses. So what we do is we overwrite this API called XML HTTP request, so that when the application calls into that API, it's actually calling our version of the API. And we take that data and then send it to our server as well as allowing that data to pass through. So JavaScript really allows us to do anything we want, and as long as we're imported before the application runs.
0: Okay, great. Well, I think at this point we have an overview of how you've built a front-end monitoring tool, at least on the user side, and on the side of I install this thing and it sits in the user's browser. I want to know more about your back-end and what you're doing to take in all of these user sessions, and how you're storing them, and what your infrastructure looks like. Give me an overview of your back end.
1: Yeah, definitely. So like I said before, a big part of our solution is that it can be deployed self-hosted in really any environment. And so from day one, really, we've been building on top of Kubernetes, which makes it a very portable application. So it can run. We run in Google Cloud, but we have customers who run in Azure, AWS, even bare metal Kubernetes infrastructure. So Kubernetes is really the core of our, of our stack. And then we use Postgres for most of the data storage.
0: What was the reasoning behind starting with Google Cloud as opposed to AWS?
1: That's a good question. I think just one day I woke up and decided Google Cloud seems cool. And then <laughs> when we first started, they were very generous with credits for, for startups. And we found the UI to be, be more intuitive. I, I wish it was more rhyme or reason behind it, but it, it was just a place that seemed best for us.
0: Well, it seems like there it's almost becoming like an operating system choice where it's like, if you go with, I mean, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but if you go with Google Cloud, it's more of a clean room of infrastructure tools. Whereas if you go with AWS, you get all of these bells and whistles and these amazing integrated tools that work really well together, but The interface is really got a lot of stuff going on. And if you kind of know what you want to build yourself and you don't really need like Lambda functions interacting with each other and the full stack serverless buffet of things, Google Cloud seems like a better, cleaner option.
1: For sure. There's definitely more services in AWS, but we don't really need satellite scanning. You know, for what what we're doing now, so <laughs> yet uh, yeah. there's definitely enough in Google, and and they keep building more and more. You know, every year, but there's definitely yeah some some amount of bloats, and it's overwhelming when you open the AWS options and there's those 200 different tools and services available.
0: And as far as building on top of Kubernetes with the mentality of we want to make this thing portable, we want to make this thing deployable to enterprises that want to self-host it. Is there anything tricky about that? Like, you know, when you were deploying, when you were creating the self-hosted version and getting that to be stood up on, on Kubernetes, any unanticipated complexities?
1: Definitely. You know, I think it, the whole dream of Kubernetes is that you can do something like this and you just, with one click, move it between clouds. But I think we're still probably four to five years away from that, that vision completely. Some of the things that are harder, auto scaling, you know, how do you make sure things scale correctly across different clouds? How do you deal with data ingresses? So how do you get data into the system in a consistent way across clouds? How do you set up underlying infrastructure if it's not within Kubernetes? So how do you manage a database if it's external to Kubernetes? Or do you manage that internally to Kubernetes? So we we still run into a lot of those those types of problems today, certificates, but it's definitely it's a lot easier than the old days where you'd have to create a VM, configure it and, and all this all this stuff that Kubernetes just takes care of for you.
0: And in building that yourself, do you do you have some way to simulate what the enterprise infrastructure would look like? Or do you just have people that you like customers, potential customers that you have try to deploy it with their own Kubernetes and then they you kind of play a support role and just help them triage through those issues?
1: Yeah, more the latter. And I'd say, you know, fortunately, most Kubernetes environments are fairly similar in terms of what's available, what the APIs are, you know, it is it is a standard. So it's not really Kubernetes compliant, unless it follows those standards. So I'd say we, if the customer is running Kubernetes, it's a fairly standard deployment path. And then for customers not already running Kubernetes, we have Terraform scripts that will spin-up sort of a Terraform environment that we're comfortable with.
0: You mentioned Postgres is your main database. What's behind the Postgres choice?
1: Yeah, that also was just an early decision that probably still no rhyme or reason behind it. Besides it, it worked and was able to scale pretty well. You know, a good amount of our data is relational in nature. So being able to do you know joins and transactions versus more of a NoSQL option But definitely, you know, you get into more limitations as you scale Postgres and and more complexities there.
0: And tell me more about the ingress and storage process. So you get these user sessions in. you have to, you know, they come in over protobuf and then you've got to deserialize them. You've got to do some things with them. You've got to figure out how, how you're going to store them. Tell me more about the ingress and storage process of all these user sessions.
1: Yep, exactly. So, you know, like you just described, you have to to store the data. You have to, for different data types, transform them in different ways on the back end to be in a format that we can then replay. So a good example of this is, let's say you're on Instacart and you view an image of the grapes. That image may change in the future, so that URL may change. So we actually cache that asset on the back end so that when you go replay that session, we have the same exact image of the grapes that the customer had when they were interacting originally.
0: Wow. And the actual session data, is that being stored in Postgres or are you throwing that in S3 or something?
1: That's actually stored in Postgres, yeah.
0: Interesting. And you just just store it as, as raw, deserialized, replayable log data?
1: Yep, exactly. So the protobuf format's nice because it's fairly small data and Postgres now has fairly good ways of managing just binary data uh, types. So that, it's worked for us. You know, definitely in in the future, we may have to explore other database options, but, you know, at least for where we are now, it's worked.
0: Like under what circumstances do you think Postgres would break down?
1: Yeah, you know, there's definitely issues with, with scaling and managing larger Postgres instances. So I think it's more a function of how much data you're ingesting in there. But we manage hundreds of terabytes of data a month and it's, it's worked well for us.
0: So if the user or the, let's say the developer who has gotten this, this crash report or this bug report, they log into the log rocket, like developer terminal and they can load up the problematic session and they can replay it. What is the process of loading that session from the protobuf data that's stored in Postgres into the replay environment. How do you like hydrate that user session and and turn it into this robust, replayable session capture?
1: Yeah, definitely. And that's where there's so many edge cases when it comes to to this, because we're essentially rebuilding a browser within the browser. So what we do is when you're replaying, we actually have an iframe embedded in that developer console, where we recreate the DOM elements as they appear to that customer and synthesize a lot of the events that were going on. So if you were hovering over a button, we actually insert this kind of fake hover CSS class, so it appears like someone's still hovering over that button. But really, we use that iframe to recreate what the browser looked like at that time. And then as you play or as you scrub in that session, we apply the diffs on that DOM data to get it back into the state that the customer saw. That's where a lot of the complexity is is how do you organically recreate what the user was seeing and also do it performantly and quickly so that you could go an hour into a session and it shows up in milliseconds for the developer.
0: Yeah, that's what's kind of crazy is I, it, like if I think about the full stack of what we're talking through here, like the user has gone to instacart.com and logrocket has first grabbed the schema of the page, and then as the user is going through their session, LogRocket is capturing the mutations to the page and shipping those diffs. And then at the end of the session, you've got basically the page and then the change set stored in your Postgres database. And then when the developer goes into the console or into the, you know, the backend developer experience you're creating this way of them being able to scrub through the entire session like a Netflix movie. And that means you have to be able to recreate the entire page in an iframe and then be able to scroll through the mutations to that page in the iframe. So, Can you just give me an example of why that is hard, of why it's hard to recreate an entire session in an iframe?
1: Yeah. One element is there's so many different browser APIs that you have to account for that when in a normal session, you don't have to consider those. But then when you're replaying, there's so many edge cases that you have to essentially rebuild. So a good example is Shadow DOM, where... To capture Shadow DOM requires you to actually add another mutation observer to every Shadow DOM element. And then when you rebuild it, make sure you respect the namescaping of the Shadow DOM CSS so that you don't have styles leaking to those Shadow DOM elements. Another good example, if you think about, say, a two-hour session, there might be tens of thousands of changes that have happened. So, But a developer, the problem may happen at the end of that two-hour session. So how do you enable someone to go view our the second hour of the session without it taking minutes and minutes for that session to load? So the performance implications behind making that data available as quickly as possible, you know, that's a difficult technical problem.
0: A lot of what you're talking about these problems seem like things that you would not be able to anticipate until some <laughs> some developer that was troubleshooting an issue they were using your troubleshooting tool and they're like, this doesn't look right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> can you tell me about like, what's that feedback process? I mean, I-, I can imagine kind of an irate customer who's like, you know, your, your debugging tool has bugs in it.
1: <laughs> I'd like to file a ticket. E- yeah. I mean, even worse than that, the first customer we onboarded, I was at their office, they deployed our SDK to production and immediately they saw all their analytics drop to zero. The entire site crashed. So, <laughs> oh, you know, no. years and years of beta testing that, and, and just onboarding customers until you know over time it's like a whack a mole. You you have enough customers report issues that you can go and, and and figure them out. But I remember when we were first starting, like first six nine months, we would just you know ask customers can we view your sessions and we'd go in inspect what looked off, do a deep dive into it and then we have a chrome extension that actually lets us inject our script onto their site so we would go figure out what the edge case was that we didn't account for write a test for it and then fix but that process does you know takes a takes a long time and went through many iterations of that to get it right
0: this whole space is pretty interesting the front end monitoring space because it is like one of these spaces that when you begin to look at it more closely it's it's very deep and I mean, the, the same thing has been happening on the back end over and over and over again. We have every, every new generation of new platforming, platform infrastructure leads to new logging companies and it leads to new monitoring companies for whatever reason. And nobody ever thro- throws out their old log management software, as far as I know. Or if they do, that migration process is very, very slow. So I'm wondering from the business perspective... How do you anticipate the front-end monitoring space unfolding? I mean, there's, only, there's really only a few players at this point. Do you think it is as deep as back-end monitoring?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's deep in a different way, where in back-end, if you look at some of the great companies out there, like Dynatrace and Datadog and, and App Dynamics, they do so much intelligence around where are API requests going and are, how are you tracing it and how is our service dependencies mapped? How do we trace in 50 different languages? How do you log data and, and make it affordable? On the front end, I think it's different where it's more around what are the problems that are really impacting customers and how do we surface those effectively? And I that's really where I see the space of the front end modern going is how can you better filter through all the noise on the front ends to to show developers and product managers and designers what's really important to the customer experience? and. You know,
0: we talked through a workflow of the customer actually saying what went wrong. Like, you know, I'm going to send an email to Instacart that says, hey, the grapes didn't make it to my shopping cart. That's never going to happen. Like, I'm never actually sending that email. <laughs> like, I'm just add, I'm just going to, like, find a different fruit and add it to my shopping right. cart or add, like, you know, the white grapes instead of the, the purple grapes. You know, you mentioned surfacing these issues because a lot of these issues are just like – little jittery things. There's, it's like nobody's going to report this. So how do you identify those issues without requiring a human to intervene?
1: Yeah, there's a few different ways that we're approaching this. You know, One is how are users responding to that red grapes? Like if you try to add the red grapes, you're probably not just going to try once. You may try two, three, four, or five times. So how do you identify those patterns of user frustration and use that to better determine what's impacting customers. So that's kind of one vector to look at the problem. You know, Another, we do have thousands and thousands of users who do report issues, and the developer goes in and, and you know looks at them, probably more for business apps or apps where you're really engaged and you want to get something done. So we can look at those users who are actually reporting issues and, and use that to determine what is user frustration on the web actually look like. So that's kind of one side user frustration. The other side is looking more at business metrics. So if you're Instacart and you're tracking what percentage of users who add an item to a cart then check out, what are the types of problems that are causing that dropout, that conversion rate to be worse and, and use that to better determine what's actually impacting customers? So those are a few of the different techniques that we're that you know, we're looking at to better proactively surface issues that matter.
0: So the second example you gave, like you were looking at factors that affect the conversion rate, you know, like, I don't know, the time time it takes to add red grapes to my cart or the number of times I have to try to add red grapes before, to my cart before they actually are added to my shopping cart. I mean, I'm just trying to understand if I know some information about what does or does not lead to conversions How is that going to change my workflow of sifting through? Like, you know, there's millions of people using Instacart. You know, they use Instacart three times a week. That's, you know, three million sessions. How is Instacart going to use their knowledge of what leads to conversions to sift through all these sessions, actually prioritize what to study in all these sessions?
1: Yeah, one way to look at it is, let's say you have an error that's just noise and and not affecting the user at all. Users who have that problem versus users who don't—they're going to convert at the same exact rate because it's not affecting their experience at all. But the user who tries to add the red grapes but fails and sees an error—they're probably going to not convert as much. Like they—they may go to, you know, Peapod or or you know one of the, another food delivery service instead. So comparing the users who encounter the problem versus not and seeing how those folks differ. That helps our algorithm on the back end better show what what issues are important to the customer. Mm.
0: And you mentioned earlier that in some cases you can take the Redux store and you can snapshot the information in the Redux store. If the site that the company, like in Instacart in this case, if Instacart was using React and they're using Redux, if I recall correctly, Redux is like this in-memory thing that just sits in your browser and basically you can throw stuff in it. And, you know, as the user navigates through all these different pages, you have this sense of shared state that sits in the Redux store. How does snapshotting the Redux store, what kinds of, you know, advantages is there to, to doing that and, and shipping that to the, to the user session playback?
1: Actually, the first version of LogRocket, we were inspired by Redux to build it because, Redux is kind of this log of every single thing that's going on the front end, where when the user clicks a button, that triggers a Redux action that you could then serialize and send to a server. So we saw that and and said, actually, this is really useful information for troubleshooting. But basically, using all those, those actions that the user takes, that can help the developer narrow down to what exactly was the user's sequence of events that caused this problem to occur. And then even go... Let's say there's an error state, you can even take that same Redux state and bring that back locally to reproduce the state more quickly that way. So Redux really provides this nice serializable data set that you can use to figure out what exactly did the user do to get into a certain state of the application.
0: So was your initial product completely focused on React developers?
1: Yep. Yeah. first version was all just for Redux and there was no video playback at all. It was just the series of Redux logs, and you know, kind of as two people do, just working out of their apartments. One day, someone just had an idea: oh, what if we add this session playback piece? And we we did that, and that's kind of how that that whole piece started. But uh, yeah, originally it all focused on Redux and React developers.
0: The other company I know of in this space is Full Story, and they do something similar. Do you know how they're engineering their implementation of session capture compares to what you're doing?
1: I'm not super familiar with their, their exact implementation, but I, I think most companies approach it in a similar way these days with using Mutation Observer to capture the series of DOM events, but I'm not, not exactly sure of their specific implementation.
0: Is that a newer API, that Mutation Observer? It's
1: probably about eight, eight years old, so yeah, on the newer side, but not, not sort of cutting edge.
0: Got it, got it. So, these front-end monitoring tools, they started to come out, like, you said this this was necessitated maybe five years ago, but it seems like they, the front-end monitoring tools, they're much, they are much newer than maybe three. When did you start LogRocket? Two or three years ago? 2016,
1: yep. So, about four years now.
0: Okay. Well, that's not that, that's, I guess that's not that long, but the, you could have had this this kind of company come
1: a lot earlier, right? Definitely. I mean, the original real inspiration was, I was working on a front end a backbone front end and users would report problems send screenshots to my CEO who would then forward the emails to me and I have no idea how to figure out these issues so that was probably 2015 backbone but I think now you know it's a combination of more there's enough front end apps to support a business like this and the performance of browsers is good enough that doing this kind of session capture especially the amount of data we collect is still is performed enough so I think now is really the or 2016 was really a great time to start the company where this is a wave that you know we think will just continue to grow.
0: The consolidation around front-end frameworks, most prominently React, but there are people who if you know Angular really well, you just dig in more, you get, you know, get accustomed to Angular. You have the the view cadre of people who just love Vue, you know, for, for whatever reason, different design decisions. That kind of standardization around front-end frameworks, are you seeing the same kind of standardization in GraphQL? Is, is the front-end community really centralizing around GraphQL, or is it, do you think it's still more of, a, more of an optional kind of thing?
1: Yeah, I'd say it's, it's definitely growing in popularity, from what I can tell, and particularly Apollo, and kind of the shift from Redux to Apollo and GraphQL. But I'd still say it's on the early side in terms of adoption. And Whereas I think React really reduces the complexity in a lot of ways, I think Apollo and GraphQL can add complexity in other ways. So there's more trade-offs to consider, whereas comparing React to, say, jQuery is really hard to find downsides. I think there's more trade-offs to be be had when you're thinking about GraphQL versus REST.
0: Hmm. Do you get any... Macro. I don't know how many customers you have, but I imagine you have enough customers to have a pretty big sample of what front-end stacks look like today. Do you have any macro observations about how front-end stacks are are changing, or how I guess just JavaScript stacks are changing?
1: Yeah, we haven't done too many sort of macro projects analyzing all of our our customers. That we we do want to do those and put some of the obviously anonymized data on our blog at some point. I do look at the NPM stats quite a bit, you know, in comparing React packages, Redux, GraphQL. And I feel like those are, those show a good representation of how these stacks are getting adopted and and all that. But we have more data around sort of what issues customers are encountering rather than looking too much at the front end stacks.
0: Okay, well, just a few more questions on go to market and just kind of take a step back. What is the go-to-market like for a front-end monitoring tool? What strategies for building user adoption have been successful for you?
1: Yeah. You know, both my co-founder and I are developers and we've always found products from searching for a problem, finding a solution and implementing it. So that's that's really where we started from day one. So you know, hopefully, hopefully some of the listeners have have seen the Log Rocket blog where we've invested a lot to look to build a really great resource for front end developers. And, you know, hopefully they they use that. And when they do have a problem that we can help help solve that they they find us. That's been our first and foremost, you know, way of finding customers and building community. You know, until coronavirus and COVID, we also went to a lot of different sort of conferences and, and meetups and trade shows, you know, where front end developers were spending time. Obviously it's harder now with the current atmosphere and environment. And then a big thing for us is also just word of mouth and referrals and asking, you know, happy customers to, to tell their friends. But, you know, for really the blog and started, we started that basically the same day we started the company. That's been the biggest source for us.
0: How do you see yourself positioned relative to the crash reporting, the crash
1: monitoring tools? When you look at most of the crash, really, you know, all the crash reporting tools, they started at monitoring, you know, like your Django application, your Ruby on Rails application, and then moved into the front end and kind of applied similar techniques to front end as the back end stacks. And those they work great for capturing JavaScript exceptions and merging and making those actionable. We kind of see ourselves as what are all the problems that are not necessarily crashes that are happening to customers and making those actionable and solvable. So, you know, we were complemented quite a bit by you know products like Bugsnag and Sentry, and think the best stack involves you know incorporating us with those other products.
0: Interesting. So that workflow would be like some crash monitoring tool detects a problem and ships, you know, a notification to pager duty or whatever. And then that developer needs to figure out what went wrong. And then they dig into the session playback in something like LogRocket to fully triage the issue.
1: Exactly. Or, you know, there's a backend problem, but it's not obvious what caused that API request to be made. So then you can view the session and and see what happened. And then we also go the other way where if a user reports an issue and you detect something's wrong, you can then go and go from LogRocket to a tool like Datadog or Splunk to figure out what happened on the backend. So we're trying to really connect all the tools as as best we can.
0: Right. So that opens up a lot of questions. So you know, if I'm troubleshooting something that occurred on the front end, it is often going to require this piecing together of things that might have happened in the front end and the networking layer and the back end. And trying to get a unified perspective for this workflow is, is not easy. It's not as easy as like, oh, there's some magical distributed tracing tool that's going to piece together everything that occurred at each of these layers. It seems like the only way for a developer to really triage these kinds of issues is to look at them from a number of different angles and then poke and prod at it, right? Like, tell me more about like workflows of using different tool sets of diagnosing problems that might involve errors at multiple layers of the stack.
1: Yeah, we kind of see it as log rocket, we can capture all the data that's going on the front end. But Backend visibility is a a whole another you know, beast and ballgame, and that's where we want to bring you to that data on the backend. So an example would be, you know, you say, "Hey, I tried to buy grapes, it didn't work," and there's a specific API request that timed out. We can then enable you to go from that request within LogRocket and see all the associated backend data within Datadog from that request. So, what was the trace that associated with it? What was the database call that failed? But in that case, log rocket's really the entry point into seeing where in all this backend data should I even start looking.
0: Got it. So, by the way, I when I was preparing for the show, I watched some stuff on YouTube, and it seems like you do have a pretty good content strategy because there's a lot of you got a lot of content on your YouTube channel. I saw a lot of like pretty good blog posts on your blog that looked like they were sort of outsourced. So it looks like you got a pretty good content strategy. But one thing that was kind of hilarious <laughs> that I saw interfering with your YouTube
1: SEO, there's apparently something called a log rocket stove. Oh, yeah. Up- yeah. That's a <laughs> <laughs> that's our favorite. Everyone should Google log rocket stove and they're somewhat dangerous, so be careful. But that's our favorite company pastime is building log rocket stoves. <laughs> <laughs> so you've actually done it? No, I actually haven't, but that we've always been planning a company outing to go camping and a log rocket stove competition. That is an unfortunate competition to our SEO.
0: Yeah, it's like, it looks like there's a full YouTube subculture of people who build, like, I guess it's literally like you carve out the inside of a, of a log and then you turn it into a stove.
1: Yeah, it's pretty impressive. I guess you need to bring a drill out there and, and tools to, to accomplish that, but it's better than a campfire I right here.
0: Well, I don't know the advantages too much, but I was thinking about it a little bit. And like if it was raining, it would be pretty useful, I think. It could start a fire in the rain. Anyway, this is not like camping engineering daily, so <laughs> that's for another episode. What changes to the front-end world do you expect in the next couple of years?
1: Yeah, I'm pretty excited about WebAssembly and, and the implications there. I could see that really enabling a whole new class of web apps and more gaming, more sort of apps that traditionally would have to be desktop moving to the browser. I think Figma, for anyone familiar, is a a good example of really an app that's been enabled by that shift. You know, the other area I'm interested to track is how mobile develops. And, you know, for years, everyone's been saying mobile web is the future and every mobile app will just be a web app, but seems like potentially it's shifting actually more to native in the past few years. So you know, I'm curious if that swings back, and we start seeing more and more web apps on mobile the next few years. The WebAssembly
0: story with Figma, if I recall, they Figma ships entirely as a C plus plus app, and then it just runs in the browser, which is kind of a crazy workflow.
1: Oh yeah, and that's the really interesting thing is that you know you're not necessarily going to code in WebAssembly, but You could see web application frameworks being built in any language. You could have, you know, Java apps that are, you know, compiled down to WebAssembly, Rust. You know, really, you could write any language, any framework, and that could turn into WebAssembly. So it provides so many different options for how to build apps because it's this kind of this native target.
0: All right. Well, that will make your job much harder.
1: Yes, it will. (laughs) It will.
0: Matt, thanks for coming on the show. Been great talking. Thanks, Jeff.